warning. Parental guidance suggested. Some material may not be suitable for children. Warning. High voltage. Keep out. Emergency alert. Tornado warning in this area. Take shelter now. Our lives are filled with warnings, aren't they? We generally see them on road signs, product labels, especially here in the southeast Midwest. We get those tornado alerts, different parts of the year. They are designed to notify us of a potential danger or some type of undesirable outcome that might be likely ahead. But we know from experience that warnings are one of the most practical ways we teach and guide people. If we really love them, we're going to be inclined to protect them. That's why you warn them. You tell your kids, don't cross the street without us there. You tell your teenager who's zealous in their driving, learning, education, look both ways, extra long, please, before we go. We warn others we love. We even ring the siren at times because we want what's best for the people we love. That's why the Apostle Paul, in his ministry to the Colossians, he he really basically summarizes what his ministry was all about. In Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29, notice what he says. Him, that is Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, which means to labor to the point of exhaustion, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Friends, it's not just apostles, it's not even just pastors that see warning as an important part of life and ministry. It's parents, too. Parents learn quickly that without careful admonition, their children will be left naive and gullible to the world around them. So instructions like, buckle your seatbelt while you're driving. Don't touch the stove when it's on. Be discerning about who you date and who you marry. Friends, these are instructions that come from a heart of love, not a heart of hate. Love that flows from a heart that wants what's best for a child. And to that end, what's best for a spouse? What's best for a friend? What's best for a fellow church member? You know, I don't know if you've read the book of Proverbs lately. I would encourage you, if you're looking for some kind of new discipline in your quiet time, maybe read a gospel in the afternoon and a proverb in the morning. There's about 31 in Proverbs. There's about 28 in Matthew. There's a month's worth of discipline for you right there, free of charge. But if you read Proverbs starting this week, you'll notice in the first seven chapters, there's a cyclical refrain. In other words, it's on repeat of basically saying the same thing that my introduction has just told you. Listen, for example, Proverbs 1, verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Proverbs 4, verse 1, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive 
that you may gain insight. And then there's Proverbs 5. It's a father's plea to his son to beware of the sensual woman who does not fear God. Pay attention to his admonition. Proverbs chapter 5, starting in verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan. When your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Friends, it's not even just parents who get how important it is to instruct and warn those they love. Friends, we see it in coaches, right? Coaches of sports teams, they tell their players the rules. You know, if you do this, you get a penalty, you get a foul, you sit on the bench. That's a good warning. Or teachers in school that they realize if they don't have rules and boundaries and warnings for their kids, their Monday morning class turns into a zoo. Think about the policeman. If he's doing his job well, what is he designed to do? He's designed to enforce the speed limit to protect us who are driving on the road. Friends, without even knowing everyone's story in here, I can safely assume that all of us at some point can look back at a time when someone warned us and we praise God they did. We look at the things we regret in our life Most of them are probably because we did not heed the warnings. And then we look back in our life and we praise God for regrets we see others have that we don't have because we did heed those warnings. Friends, that's that's why they're there. We need those in our life. We need those who have compassion to meet us right where we're at in our times of suffering and need. And we need people who are courageous to speak what we need to hear. Simply what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. I would imagine this room is filled with story after story of others in our lives who've also forbeared with us in our slowness to grow up. Forbearing with how slow and inconsistent our spiritual growth has been those who have shown unusual amount of patience time and time again of saying the same thing week after week and you still not getting it. 
Friends, these warnings, these forbearing with one another, uh, these are all designed by God to protect us from things that could harm us and cause consequences we don't want to face later in life. Friends, when you are warned by those who love you, do you listen? When you are cautioned and warned by Jesus through what his word says, do you believe Jesus has your best interest in mind? Friends, how has Jesus been compassionate and patient with you, even in your slowness to trust him for who he really is? If you have a copy of God's word, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we'll be looking specifically at Mark 8, verses 1 to 26. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 492. And if you're looking on your phone, good luck. I have no idea how fast you have to scroll, but Mark chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking for him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. 
And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have three main points that will serve as an outline for us today. Number one, Jesus loves the crowds by compassionately meeting their needs. Jesus loves the crowds by compassionately meeting their needs. That's verses 1 to 10. Number two, Jesus loves his disciples by warning them against corrupt influences. Jesus loves his disciples by warning them against corrupt influences. It's verses 11 to 21. Number three, which is the shortest point, Jesus loves his disciples by patiently teaching them again and again. Jesus loves his disciples by patiently teaching them again and again. That's verses 22 to 26. Let's look at number one together. Jesus loves the crowds by compassionately meeting their needs. Here in chapter 8, Mark informs us that a great crowd, it's just another way of saying a large crowd, of people had gathered around Jesus once again. As you may recall from Mark chapter 6, we studied about the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 plus people with only five loaves of bread and two fish. In this section, we see Jesus perform the same feeding miracle, but this time it was to 4,000 plus people with only seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. As we'll notice together, there are certainly similarities between the two uh, accounts. They are two distinct stories and two distinct records of two different miracles, but there are some unique differences between the two as well. So let's look at those together. Beginning here in verse 1, he says, did you, did you catch that, just that kind of throwaway phrase sometimes? In those days... Don't miss that when you're reading through the Gospels. That's the Gospel writer trying to help you stay with the story. It's just another way of saying we're picking up where we left off last time in chapter 7. 
It really just means around the same period of time or just not much longer afterwards. That means that Jesus has not left the region of the Decapolis. Remember Mark 7, verse 31? He left Tyre and Sidon and went to the east, to the Decapolis, which informs us that Jesus is still living and still ministering among the Gentiles who live there. And that means the, run, the plane has not left the runway yet or the boat has not departed to go back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee yet. Jesus is still meeting people right where they're at in their suffering, in their sin, and in their darkness. He goes to them. And when Jesus gets closer to them, many of them don't realize that the Father is drawing them to Jesus. That's how salvation happens. When were you saved? Well, the hour, the day, and the minute, and the second, and all that kind of flowery nonsense in a testimony. Hey, God bless you if you remember the day, the time, and the hour, and the people you knew. Praise the Lord. But let me give you a newsflash. The Lord was probably drawing you a long time before then. And if you can't remember the day, the hour, and the second, guess what? Welcome to Christianity. You can't see where the wind blows. So praise be to God that you're saved, but it's not all that important that you don't remember the day, the hour, and the second. That's not how that works. The father is often drawing his elect children, even without them knowing they're being drawn. Here, Jesus is in the crowds, and these residents of the Decapolis and all the neighboring communities, again, they're located east of the Sea of Galilee. But unlike the account in Mark 6 of the feeding of the 5,000, which was probably made up mostly of Jews on the west of the Sea of Galilee, on the east side is Gentiles. This is where the unclean dogs lived. The Syrophoenician woman, remember last week? Who is that? That's, that's us. Those who were non-Jews, separated from God and the covenants of promise that have been brought near. These were pagan, idolatrous, immoral heathens that were separated from the covenant community of Israel. Friends, they lived on the other side of the tracks. You don't go to them if you want to stay clean and pure, so the Jews thought. And yet Jesus went to them. And he stayed with them for a time, revealing himself as the Messiah for the nations. Secondly, we see Jesus show the same thoughtful, heart-throbbing empathy that he has shown throughout the Gospel of Mark to those who were hurting and in need. I want you to notice the brief conversation between Jesus and the disciples. It's actually much quicker and briefer than in Mark 6's account. Look with me in Mark 8, verse 2. Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? 
Notice again the beautiful harmony of the eternal divine son of God who is truly God and yet is truly man. Jesus perfectly displays the pity, the mercy, and compassion our God shows towards the weak, the weary, and the heavy laden like us. Beloved, are you feeling heavy laden today? Have you carried a heavy burden throughout the week? Are you wondering how on earth you're going to make it another week at work or at home or at church if circumstances don't change for your life? Friends, are you frustrated with God? You're disappointed with him. Are you impatient with God because he hasn't given you something you want? A child? A spouse? Maybe some other prayer request you've been praying for a long time? Are you growing discouraged because the doctor hasn't given you a precise diagnosis of your health condition? Are you feeling tired and torn up emotionally because of the injustice and ungodliness you've encountered this week? If any of those questions strike a chord with you, be comforted by this promise. Jesus has compassion for you. Jesus has compassion for you. And if you're tempted to forego obeying God and just do things your way, you're thinking that I'm not going to wait on God's timing. Doing it God's way, that seems too hard. To cut this out of my life, to get rid of this pet sin, to open up and share what I've been doing with my life, no, 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 that's just too hard. Friends, if that's where you're at this morning, if there's something you're hiding, you know what you ought to do, but you're just not doing it. You know what the Lord's telling you to do, but you're just not doing it. Friend, tell the Lord your temptation. Tell him about where your heart is prone to wander. He is compassionate and sympathetic even in your temptations. Remember what Jackson read earlier from Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18? Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, listen, he is able to help those who are being tempted. As we learned back in Mark 6, the word compassion in the original language, it literally means to have the bowels yearn. It was just another ancient way of talking about one's most innermost core. It was to feel sympathy to have a deep, immense pity for someone suffering in need. Brothers and sisters, that's just a good reminder for us today. I'm not sure what picture you and I have of Jesus. but Make no mistake about it, Jesus was not indifferent to people's pain and suffering. He didn't act as if he was just too busy above helping those who were just an inconvenience to his busy schedule. They were just a little annoying little too different 
They're just not like me. Friends, unlike us, who often make excuses in helping hurting people, Jesus drew near to them. Now again, remember though, Jesus didn't help and heal every person that came his way. I mean, friends, do not read the Gospels and think that Jesus was a 24-7 healing vending machine. That's why he didn't, he didn't come for that purpose. He only stayed for three years, or at least in his public ministry. No, Jesus was perfectly focused on his Father's mission. That mission that was primarily cons- consumed with preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. And yet, even amidst all the pressures from the people, the knuckleheads that his own disciples often were, the twists and turns of the circumstances Jesus regularly faced, Jesus still found time to graze amongst the sheep. In other words, he wasn't just a pulpiteer who could spout off things from a distance in some ivory tower, but he was with the people. It was a shepherd that really did smell like his sheep. Friends, that's what you should want in the elders of this church. Pray that the elders at this church would always smell like the sheep. Pray that future elders of this church would smell like the sheep. And friends, if you're visiting here today and you're not a member of a church, but you're looking to join a church, pray that God would lead you to a church that the pastors there graze amongst the sheep. Be careful of going to a church because you like what you hear on a podcast. Pastoring is a lot more than preaching and teaching. It's grazing amongst the flock. Jesus seemed to always find time, some way, in the 24 hours he was given, just like us, to pull up the chair, to sit on the couch, to linger with the sheep. To linger after the church service or in the parking lot or after Bible study, simply to love and minister to those who were in need. Uh, members of CCBC, pray that God, by His Spirit, would make each one of us compassionate like Jesus. Pray that God would make each one of us compassionate like Jesus. Pray that we all, regardless of how many plates we're spinning or how heavy one plate might be in our life, that we still find time to slow down, pull up the chair, sit on the couch, linger a little while, encourage another sheep, pray for another sheep, hug another sheep, laugh with another sheep, cry with another sheep, and if you need to, forgive another sheep, and even ask for forgiveness from another sheep. Remember Colossians 3? Verses 12 and 13, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. In fact, to get a better feel for the depth of compassion and patience Jesus had for the crowds, notice how long they had been with Jesus. Look at verse 2. It had been nearly, if you see there, three days. They've been sticking with Jesus, and Jesus has been sticking with them. Kids, 
Kids, where you at? This is your part, okay? If you want to shout out in the sermon, here you go. Who in your family gets hangry? You know what hangry is? Come on now. An adult, define what hangry is so the kids know what we're talking about. Grant, you know what it means to be hangry? Dad, you raised me. What does it mean to be hangry? Oh, yeah. And when I'm hungry, I show what? There you go. Hangry, hungry, angry. Woo, brilliant. Mr. Grouchy Pants. Mrs. I don't want anyone to talk to me. There's always at least one hangry person in every family. But imagine thousands of hangry people coming to your house this afternoon for three days. Behold Jesus' ministry. They're hungry, tired, they're cranky, they're hangry. It's been three days. What would you do if thousands of people were hangry and you were the one they thought had the answer to their problem? Friends, I'm not sure why Jesus waited three days to feed them. It's quite possible that he had been teaching them for three days, just like he did in Mark 6. It could also be possible that they had run out of food. They took their snacks, their applesauce and fish crackers and whatever they packed in their pockets back in those days, and they just ran out. Jesus could have fed the whole herd of them in one moment, in one day, but for whatever reason, it was three days. But one thing is for sure, Jesus never left the people. He knew they were hungry. He knew they were hurting. And he didn't leave them. Some of us need to hear that familiar truth once again. Jesus might not give you the answer you're looking for. He might not give you the answer to a prayer or request you're looking for. But he does promise you this, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Dear Christian, isn't that exactly what Romans chapter 8 reminds us? That nothing, famine, nakedness, sword, danger, death, life, angels, demons, things now, things to come, can separate you, can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To my non-Christian friend, you might be thinking, you know what? I'll trust in God if he answers these three prayers. I'll trust in God once my life gets turned around in a new direction. I'll trust in God if I get the job promotion. Friends, don't negotiate with God. That's testing him. God's already sent you his best in Jesus. Even if God never answered another prayer you and I ever prayed, he's already been good to us. He sent his son, Jesus, his best, heaven's best, as we're going to sing at the very end. What more should we ask? What more do we need? Heaven's already sent us the best gift. Friends, we know that because our greatest need is our sin against God. We have rebelled against him. We have fallen short of his glory. We have distrusted a good God by doing things our way over his way. And we deserve his judgment. Friends, if you to die in your sin, you'll spend an eternity 
being punished under God's just wrath. And friends, the good news is is God has sent his son, heaven's best. Christ in his compassion has pity for sinners like us. And Christ in his courage went to the cross, bearing the penalty we deserve, punished in our place. And three days later, God raised him from the dead, giving us hope and life eternally in his son. Friends, turn from your sins. Trust in Christ. No one will ever pursue you. No one will ever love you. No one can ever promise to you, I will never leave you or forsake you like he can. Because even a married couple, you might think you marry Prince Charming or the Queen, and you can still tell her that. But there is no marriage in heaven. The only marriage that exists in heaven is between Christ and his bride, the church. And that's a bridegroom who will always keep his promises. Isn't that good news? Here in Mark 6, we see the relentless, steadfast love of Christ to the people. And notice how Jesus is very reluctant to shoo the people away. His disciples, eh, this is annoying. Eh, we're kind of in the middle of nowhere. There's no harps, there's no target. We've kind of been through this before, Jesus. Are we doing this logistical nightmare again? And Jesus says in Mark 8, verse 3, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint. They won't make it. Some of them have come a long ways to see me. Brothers and sisters, we might not have all the answers to life's problems. We might not know how to fix everyone's struggles. You're not going to be Mr. Fix-It and Mrs. Know-It-All. So go ahead and let's all just take a spoonful of humility and go, yeah, I, I don't know what to tell you but I know who does. These people are coming to Jesus. His disciples are going, oh, how are we going to help these people? And Jesus says, don't worry, leave it to me. Friends, if that's where you're at, maybe you got someone in your life that's seeking out counsel from you. They've made known you some heavy prayer requests this week, and you're like, I'm not sure what to do. I wish I could do more. Remember these two promises, James 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Or Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the what? Beginning of knowledge. Friends, ask God for wisdom. Fear God and put him first in all your ways, and he will make straight your paths. He's going to give you the strength to face the trial. He's going to give you the wisdom to make sound decisions. He will give you guidance and resources for whatever you need and whatever he's called you to face. Friends, what an amazing promise it is that whether we are waiting three days in our request to God, or three years in our request to God, or three decades in our request to God, you can bank this. He will never leave you, nor forsake you. Friends, God may sometimes appear silent in answering our prayers, but he promises to lead and to guide and never leave us. And this is precisely what we see take place in the remainder of this feeding. The disciples don't know what to do. The hangry people just keep getting hangrier. But Jesus is at total peace. He's not worried. Jesus isn't like calling a counselor, getting a second opinion. Jesus isn't like consulting with the angels going, hey, what does the Father say in heaven about this? He's got this all under control. 
And yet, Jesus, again, even though his disciples are just blockheads, they're so forgetful, Jesus disciples them again and again. Trust me and obey me and leave the results to God. And that's what you'll notice there in verses 8 to 10. Notice the eight and we're satisfied. They took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away and immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Jesus loves the crowds by compassionately meeting their needs. Now the disciples get back in the boat with Jesus. They've just seen a miracle and they recognize, well, you know, if he can do that, we ought to keep following him. Seems like he knows what he's talking about. And they head now to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. They're going back towards the ministry headquarter section. And we find that there's someone awaiting Jesus when he gets off the boat. It's Jesus' opponents. Which leads to point number two. Jesus loves his disciples by warning them against corrupt influences. Here in this next section, we encounter a suspicious face-off against Jesus. It's a face-off with those who opposed and even hated Jesus. Let me just say it again. People hated Jesus in the first century, and people hate Jesus in this century. So if you're going to follow Jesus, John 15 says this, if they hated me, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you if you follow me. Okay, I just need to say what's like a Dust statement in the New Testament, but not everyone loved Jesus. Here in verse 11, we see the Pharisees show up again to pick a bone with Jesus, to argue, your translation might say, to dispute with Jesus. And Mark actually tells us, under the inspiration of the Spirit, what their motives were, to test him. Now, this testing isn't like kind of the James 1 testing where it's the purifying of our faith. Jesus had no faith to be purified. (laughs) He had no sin in his life. But this was more of a temptation in order to try to seduce Jesus into a trap, to solicit him to sin. But Jesus is not afraid. (laughs) This isn't the first rodeo with the Pharisees. He's been in the ring with them a few times. Remember chapters 2 and 3? Remember chapter 7 for a few weeks ago? He knows who the Pharisees are. He knows what cards they're playing with. They can try to keep their poker face, but he sees right through their hearts. By the time we get to Mark 8, apparently the Pharisees are going, hey man, we can't take out Jesus by ourselves. He knows his Bible. He does some pretty wild stuff that we can't do. Let's team up with some others to go against him. Let's find anyone else that wants to revolt and overthrow this King Jesus people are talking about. And apparently they team up with the Herodians, and we'll later even read in the Gospels, the Sadducees, and they really just want to double up their ammo to influence others to go against Jesus like them. Like yeast, or leaven in a loaf of dough. They crave to expand their influence amongst the people. Uh, They want to diminish the praise people were giving to Jesus and take Jesus out when they can catch him in a vulnerable moment. These men are seeking to cause trouble for Jesus, and they're just trying to send a ripple effect. They want to ruin his ministry, and they want to ruin his reputation. 
they have nothing but malice intent towards our Lord. Now, what did they seek to do then? What was their game plan? They weren't really good at sparring with Jesus with the Bible because they kind of lost that in Mark 7. Well, they, they did what happens even today. They sought to undermine Jesus' ministry by spreading falsehood about him. Telling people half-truths about him. Taking things out of context. They were religious con artists who put ideas into people's minds that were simply lies. Making claims that Jesus was brainwashing the people. That he was doing the work of the devil. Like we might encounter today with juicy gossip at work. Did you hear? Did you know? Or see Facebook posts with half-truths and fake news on it. People dogpiling on stuff that they haven't even examined themselves to see if it's true. Friends, these were the type of people who would mail out anonymous letters to get petitions to take Jesus down. Sadly, they were successful to some degree. They got into Jesus' inner circle. And they let out one of his disciples, Judas. Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him in the end. Friends, anytime God is doing a powerful work in a community, in a church, in an individual Christian's life, friends, let me go ahead and say the same thing you've been hearing me say for about a month now. Spiritual warfare is only going to get more intense. It's going to become thick. It's going to become hostile. You're going to say things like, I had no idea. I didn't know it was possible for people to do that. I thought I knew this person. Friends, that's how spiritual warfare works. If you're dealing with religious hypocrites who have masks, who are led astray by the father of lies, well, you're going to face the same type of thick warfare that Jesus did. Faithful believers who obey Jesus are a threat to the kingdom of darkness. Faithful churches who obey Jesus are a threat to the kingdom of darkness. But friends, we're on the right side if you're faithful. It is way better be an enemy of the world and a friend of God than be a friend of the world and an enemy of God. Because we know who's going to win in the end. Book of Revelation, though you got some monsters and dragons and some crazy symbols, we know in the end Jesus wins. Hallelujah. So that's another persuasive reason to become a Christian. Get on the winning team who's going to win in the end. And fellow Christian, have you ever noticed that as soon as you started taking serious the Christian life, reading your Bible more diligently, confessing sins more openly, going deep with a few and obeying the one another's and being a committed and faithful church member, did you ever notice that as soon as you just started being more faithful as a spouse or as a parent, Things got harder with people in your life. It seemed like as soon as you got in the boat and was rowing with Jesus, the current got stronger. Guess what? That's to be expected. See, the Christian life is not a lazy river going downstream. The Christian life is the narrow way going upstream against the current. And it's hard. And it's tumultuous. And you're tempted to throw the paddle in the water and turn back around. But if you got Jesus in the boat, 
We're going north. Friends, that's to be expected in the Christian life, even for Jesus. At the beginning of his own ministry, before he has his in view of a call sermon, if you will, in that Judean wilderness, guess where Jesus is and guess who's going toe-to-toe? Satan. Mark 1.13, it says that Satan was testing him. The same Greek word here. And guess what? Satan's back. But this time, he's got minions. He's got chess pieces. He's got the Pharisees. He's got a little remote control from hell. Send him this way. Go after Jesus and his disciples. They're getting closer to Jerusalem. Friends, Jesus knew this. His disciples would learn this, and we need to learn this too. Just because you resisted a temptation six months ago, just because you overcame a certain, quote, victory in your Christian life a year ago, just because you went through the worst time in your life two years ago, do not be caught off guard. New temptations are around the corner. Thomas Brooks, Puritan, once said this, Satan will come on with new temptations when old ones are too weak. In a calm, prepare for a storm. Peter knew this well, didn't he? Peter's the one who probably told Mark all that he knew. Behold the gospel of Mark. What did Peter say in his first letter? Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see, the Pharisees are mentioned here in verse 11, but then we see some of their teammates now joining up with the opposition. In verse 15, you see this mentioning of Herod or the Herodians. And particularly, Jesus says to watch out, to beware. It means keep your eyes open. Have your discernment antenna up for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. You see, these men wanted to accuse Jesus of sin he didn't commit. Put words in Jesus' mouth that he never said. Make Jesus look like a fraud and a lunatic so that others could accuse him too. Like they would one day on Calvary. In this account, we see the Pharisees approach Jesus with ulterior motives, as they always did. Uh, They're demanding Jesus to, hey, if you really are who you say you are, show us a sign from heaven. Come on, Jesus, we're all watching. Can you just kind of feel the mockery? We're all watching, Jesus. Look at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking for him a sign from heaven to test him. Notice Jesus' response, though. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. It was a groan. Oh, again? Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Friends, have you asked the question, if you've studied this passage this week, why didn't Jesus give them what they wanted? He gave the crowds what they wanted, something to eat. He often taught his disciples when they had questions, why didn't he give the Pharisees what they wanted? Well, the simple answer is he already had. Dozens of times. Jesus had taught with an authority that astounded the scribes. Jesus had performed countless healings of paralytics and lepers and rare skin diseases. He had raised a dead girl back to life. He had fed 5,000 plus people in one miracle, 
4,000 plus people in another miracle. He had cast out demonic spirits and told them to shut their mouth. He had stilled a storm with one command. He walked on water like an afternoon stroll. He had eaten with tax collectors and sinners and made them follow Jesus in the path of holiness. Friends, these religious leaders needed no more proof. They didn't need to have a second meeting. They didn't need to ask again, what do you believe about fill in the blank? They had seen it with their own eyes. They had heard it with their own ears, and yet they remained dead in their sins and trespasses. They were not just hard of hearing, like a wife might be frustrated with her husband. I've told you four times, dinner's ready. That's not what's going on here. They're not hard of hearing. They are comfortably settled in their lazy boy of unbelief. They don't care. They hate Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson said there is a worse disease than most of our physical diseases that we'll face in this life. He said this, hardening of the spiritual arteries is a fatal disease. Jesus saw right through them. You're unteachable. You're ungodly. You have already seen more signs and wonders than most towns and communities in human history will have ever seen. I'm dusting my feet off. I'm obeying my own counsel. And the Bible says he left them. He walked away from them. He left them with their own accusations and turned his back to them. Brothers and sisters, he still does that today. Sometimes we define dead churches as churches that have no one there. Friends, don't judge a church by how many people are there. Make a judgment on a church. Is the gospel preached clearly? Are members walking in holiness and love and obedience? And are they exercising church discipline? when those who give false professions of faith are called to repentance and excluded from the supper until they are. Friends, Jesus walks away just like he will remove lampstands from dead churches when they resist the call to repent. Chris Larson once wisely said, dialogue with wolves only works out well for the wolf. Proverbs 26.4, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Matthew 7.6, Jesus said, do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. We're told in verse 13, Jesus left them. He didn't leave the crowds, but he left the Pharisees. They got back into the boat. And though Jesus did not give the Pharisees what they wanted, the Pharisees in some way had already influenced some of the disciples. Look with me again at verses 14 to 21. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf for them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? 
Do you know that's the same thing he said about the Pharisees? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? The disciples are in the boat. But Mark tells us they were focused on how little bread they had. Well, Jesus, there's 12 of us, plus you, 13. We're kind of hangry too. We have got but one loaf of bread. Jesus looks at them. I just fed a few weeks ago 5,000 plus people. Remember, you actually held the pieces of bread in your hand. We literally just got in the boat. And I just fed 4,000 plus people with seven loaves and a few sardines, basically. And you're worried that I can't feed 12 of you knuckleheads with one loaf of bread? Do you not remember I calmed the storm? Do you not remember I can walk on the sea? Do you not remember what I've already shown you about myself just today? Friends, faithlessness in the Christian life is always a result of forgetfulness. Faithlessness in the Christian life is always the result of forgetfulness. We sin and rebel and wander because we forget how faithful he is. Why did we sing earlier? Great is thy faithfulness. And that's what gives us hope every morning. These disciples had forgotten that. And guess what Jesus does? He warns them, he teaches them, he continues to disciple them. Friends, I want you to notice, though, he, he specifically warns them about the corrupt influence of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Friends, if you do a word study in the New Testament of leaven, aside from one part in the Gospel of Mark, every mentioning of leaven speaks about moral corruption in some way or form. Just to summarize the New Testament, it speaks of corrupt teaching that can infiltrate the church. Corrupt leaders who can, the blind, leading the blind. And then leaven is even spoken of corrupt church members who live in unrepentant sin and lead others to do the same. If you've got your Bible with you, I normally don't do this, but I think it's very important, especially for the life of our church. Turn to the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. One of the half a dozen references to leaven is mentioned here. I do want to just slow down and let you see this. It's very applicable as disciples of Jesus today. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Follow with me. Uh, here's an introduction to it. As, as Greg already alluded to, that this church was planted by Paul. But boy, they had many problems. You don't want to name your church First Baptist Corinth. If you do, it could haunt you. Anyways. They were to be a distinct witness for the world, to the world, and yet the world had their biggest influence in the church. So, what's going on in the church? Look with me in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, 
and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or of the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person among you. Here in chapter 5, Paul had gotten a public report. It had caught wind beyond just one or two people that it had really covered the community that there was sin being tolerated and protected and not dealt with. And Paul says, you know what that's a sign of? That's not a sign of love. That's a sign of pride. When you tolerate, protect, and let sin go unchecked and uncalled out and sweep it under the carpet in a church, that's called pride, Paul says. Their inaction showed they were trying to be more loving than Jesus is in that sense. Here Paul doesn't even tell them to go through the steps of Matthew 18, of warning and bringing others because the sin has become so egregious and the person is so unrepentant. Verse 2, they are to remove him as an act of discipline. Now friends, when someone removes someone from membership as an act of discipline, in other words, they're purging the leaven amidst them, they're not saying infallibly the person's not a Christian. Only God, the judge, knows the secrets of the heart, and on the last day it will be revealed. But Jesus has given the church the keys of the kingdom to represent King Jesus on earth to exercise spiritual judgments. And one of those is to deal with professing believers who live in unrepentant sin. That means they love their sin more than they love Jesus. At least that's what the fruit is showing. Friends, a sincere profession of faith is not the same thing as a genuine possession of saving faith. A sincere profession of faith is not the same thing as a genuine possession of saving faith. This man in Corinth thought of himself as a Christian. He was sleeping with basically his stepmom, and the church did nothing about it. It was public, it was egregious, it was ungodly, and it was unrepentant, and it was undealt with. And Paul says, you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Do you not remember our Lord Jesus talking about the leaven? A little leaven 
leavens the whole lump. In other words, if you don't deal with this, it could lead others in the church to think that's okay with Jesus. And friends, let me tell you today, churches that preach the gospel, but they don't practice loving church discipline is undermining their ministry. The good news of Jesus Christ is you can be forgiven of all your sins. Praise be to God. And yet to follow Jesus is a lifetime of repentance. If you preach repentance, but you don't practice it through loving church discipline, it's unloving. It's unchristlike. Sinning is not the main issue. We all sin. If you don't claim you sin, we got nothing for you. This church is full of sinners. There's one in the pulpit this morning. There's a big difference between one who sins and one who continues in a lifestyle of sin. The whole New Testament is filled with examples of people who are self-deceived. Friends, that's why joining a church is so good for our spiritual health. We can all be self-deceived. You might know theology, you might can preach lights out, and yet still be a full-blown hypocrite. Friends, we need each other to be accountable to each other, to encourage one another, to warn one another. Not because we're hateful and legalistic, but because we can all go astray. It's loving for a parent to warn. It's loving for a pastor to warn. It's loving for a church member to warn. Friends, you might be saying to yourself, Blake, oh my goodness, are we getting into church discipline in the middle of Mark 8? Absolutely we are. Because Jesus talked about leaven and Paul talked about leaven and boy, we ought to talk about leaven. And I don't mean in a loaf of bread you'll eat this afternoon. I'm talking about leaven that can corrupt a church. You might see, Brother Blake, this seems unloving. This seems legalistic. This seems like something I've never seen in a Southern Baptist church. We need to find a different Southern Baptist church. Four reasons why you practice loving church discipline. Jesus commanded us to do it, so we want to obey him. Number two, the unbelieving world is watching. Will we live as hypocrites or will we live holy lives? Number three, God is love, but hell is real. Judgment day is coming, and we want to warn and prepare people for that day. And number four, all of us can be self-deceived and deceive others. Friends, a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. All right, go back to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. As you're turning there, I want to encourage you. If you're a member of CCBC and you rarely come to members' meetings, you haven't come to members' meetings, or you're contemplating whether you should come to a members' meeting, friend, you're in covenant with us at CCBC, and coming to members' meetings is a part of your covenant responsibility. I want to encourage you to come back tonight unless you have a providential hindrance, you can. Tonight, 5 o'clock. Here we are, towards the end of Mark 8, Jesus warns his disciples because he loves them. There's corrupt influences because just a little leaven could leaven the whole 12. We see in point number three, he continues to patiently teach them again and again. Look at me starting in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Uh, Here in this brief story, uh, by healing a man that was blind, slowly, 
and stages. He's giving his disciples a living parable. Jesus could have done that and opened those man's eyes. He never does this ever again in the Gospels. Friends, that's why Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, places this story right here. They're in danger of being hard of hearing, hard-hearted, slow to believe, thinking about bread, not hearing about the spiritual damage and corruption of leaven. And Jesus says, watch this. I'm going to heal this blind man, but I'm going to do it slowly. I'm going to do it slowly so you can see the light come on for this blind man's life. And as he heals this blind man, just as he did the deaf man in Mark chapter 7, he's teaching his disciples a valuable lesson. You need me. You need me to illuminate your mind. You need me to guide you. You need me to teach you. There's not a moment in your life, young men, that you will not need the mercy and power and wisdom of God to give you insight and understanding to see life as I see it. And friends, the same is true for us. There is not a moment in your life or in my life where we are just as needy the day we were born again. We need God to open our eyes, open our hearts, illuminate, shine his light into the dark places of our hearts every day of our lives. Friends, I don't know about you, but these disciples sound a whole lot like Israel, right? Wandering in the wilderness three days after the exodus. Where's the water? Where's the bread? Three days, the crowd's with Jesus, and he feeds them. Maybe you're like the disciples, and you know you're susceptible to being influenced by dishonest, hypocritical, and ungodly people. Friends, if that's you, because it's me too, pray for God to give you discernment. We should be teachable, but not gullible. Just because you've been friends with someone since high school does not mean they're trustworthy. Just because you went to church with someone for decades and was a deacon with them does not mean they're trustworthy. Reevaluate their character. Reevaluate your own heart. Make sure your relationships, you can have fishing buddies, you can have knitting friends, but make sure Jesus is the number one reason why your friendship exists. Friends, even this morning, I would encourage us all to begin making Psalm 119, verse 18, our daily prayer. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. That means every time you crack open this book, every time you come to church, if you want to know how you can pray for your pastor or whoever's preaching in the pulpit, pray this. Lord, as I open my Bible, open my eyes to see Jesus. Open my eyes to see wondrous things about Jesus from your word. May Jesus give us all eyes to see him clearly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have sent heaven's best. And heaven's best has come to love, to warn, and to heal us. Father, we do pray as we consider the warnings of leaven in our own lives, leaven in the local church, that we would be patient 
in our teaching, patient in our warning, and yet at the same time, we would always side with Jesus in our disdain of our own sin and in the sins of others who claim to follow Christ. But we pray that you would cause our church to be one full of compassion, a church full of love, and a church full of holiness. Lord, open our eyes. Open our eyes to those dark places in our life that need to be exposed by the light. Open our eyes to the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.